It's good to have you, those of you here this morning that are joining us perhaps for uh, via the internet and our guests that are here with us today with our congregation to begin with. We're going to start in Luke 15 this morning. We're going to look at three verses of scripture in the introduction here, but look, go with me to, look to Luke chapter 15. This should be familiar to you. It's the passage on the lostness of individuals, and obviously right in the middle of the of the uh, passage in Luke chapter 15 is the parable of the prodigal, parable of the lost son. And so these three passages, Luke 15, Luke 18, Luke uh, 19, have to uh, do with teaching us about God's initiative, the living word's initiative in salvation. Uh, not going to read the entire passage. We will refer back to it from time to time. Look at uh, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Luke 18. Verse 13, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I do want to look at one other thing here in Luke 18, and that is look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So the tax collector didn't stay at home and pray. He went to the Lord's house to be in the presence of the Lord. That should resound with us this morning. Many folks choose just to stay home. I'm staying home and worship. Well, here we have a man that was very humble, yet he went to the temple. And then Luke 19, turn over a page. Verse 7, but when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner, talking of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, bless the word. It's the only agency in this life that you have promised to bless. It never returns void. It always accomplishes to each person here 
and to those that have that are listening via the internet or watching it accomplishes your task and that task is to exalt the living word and the initiative in the cross in Jesus name we make this prayer amen first slide brother Jeff if you would so we have uh, since uh, Advent, the beginning of Advent, then back in December, we have start, We have been looking at uh, a number of passages of Scripture. These are not necessarily expositional pass, uh, sermons. These are called textual sermons, topical, if you would, in some cases, but textual sermons. And we've looked at the wor world interrupted. We've examined authority. We looked then again at the living words interrogation. We looked at truth, and last Sunday we started to look at the words initiative, and the words initiative is salvation, and these uh, three passages of Scripture and the Gospel of Luke. The words initiative teaches us that the centrality of the cross is essential to salvation. Now, the world was interrupted in Christ's authority. And the words interrogation in the living words truth. These messages are primarily about controversy. And the controversy that Jesus himself encountered and the controversy that Jesus himself introduced. So this morning, we started last Sunday morning, this morning we will continue. How does authority and truth coalesce to bring about salvation? How does God use his authority and use his truth to initiate salvation? And we closed out last Sunday morning talking about uh, the fact that a lot of people have a problem with God's authority and God's truth because there's a deep-seated resentment against the wrath of God and how it's portrayed in, in the Word. How it's portrayed in the Gospel of Luke. And so I've had people, in fact, people have said to me, why does, a, why does God punish unbelievers with eternity in hell for a finite amount of sin? And I mentioned to you in a 2022 uh, survey of the state of theology in the U.S., now this was uh, among, uh, primarily among evangelicals. And an evangelical we would be defined as an evangelical Christian. We believe that we need to be born again, not because we have some focus and primarily on truth or some, some ability to have, be the only ones that have truth, but we believe that because that's what the Bible says, which is the authority of truth. And so, in this, there were a number of questions asked, but one of the questions that were asked, uh, that was a statement that was made, was even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And almost 70% of evangelicals, folks that believe that we need to be born again in order to, to uh, go, go home to be with the Lord, almost 70% disagree with the statement. That's sad. And I mentioned to you that folks, all folks, and sometimes believers, Craig was, praying, was teaching us this morning about praying about uh, increasing faith, and we need that. We fail to realize two things. The nature of the offender, 
and the nature of the offended. The nature of the offender, and you and I are the offender, is that we were born in the sin nature. Meaning that we commit crimes against God over the entirety of our lives. It never ceases until we die. And because of this, we deserve God's punishment. It's not our punishment. It's not the Supreme Court's punishment. It's God's punishment. There's a difference. The Trinity offers every guilty person a pardon in God the Son. And those who receive Christ are absolved of their guilt and they're rescued. That's the good news of the gospel. But there wouldn't be any good news without the bad news. And the bad news is those who reject Christ remain guilty. Remain guilty. Resulting in God's judgment to hell. And Jesus talked a number of times about that in in the Gospel of Luke. Next slide, if you would. So that's the nature of the offender. And the offenders are punished because of their rebellion. Why? Because of the nature of the person being offended. And the nature of the person being offended is the Trinity. And we offend God whether there's a single act of rebellion or a lifetime of rebellion, and there's never a single act of rebellion, never. Since God's nature is infinitely greater than ours, he's the creator, we are the creature. He's the redeemer, we are the ones that require redemption. His life, God's life, is more valuable than ours. So the nature of the penalty is infinitely greater. Packer said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Say amen. This is, way, this is the way, this is what happens when we become angry. It is instead a right and necessary Reaction to objective moral evil. And this he wrote in his great seminal work is Knowing God, which again, I highly recommend. Don, Car Don Carson wrote, In all of our sinning, God invariably is the most offended party. Now, we don't think that way. the prodigal finally understood that he had offended his father. That's the reason for the parable. God is inv invariably the most offended party. That is why we must have his forgiveness or we have nothing. Our sin desecrates God's image. And it required the consecration of God the Son. The consecration of Christ on Calvary, not in the cradle, on a Roman cross, to placate his father's wrath. 
The cross is central and essential for our salvation. We're going to see as we go back through these passages this morning, there's a, there's a great uh, comparison that is made between the prodigal and his elder brother, between the Pharisee and the tax collector, and between the crowd in Luke 19, which consisted of the disciples, by the way, and Zacchaeus. Now, we talked about this, introduced this to you last week. Salvation comes from the Greek word soteria. Uh, the base word is sozo, which is the word save, to save in, English, in the English language. It's to rescue. And God's rescue, God rescues, uh, that delivers believers out of the destruction of his wrath into safety. We all want to be saved. This week, a week or so ago, there was a, um, I've flown hundreds of thousands of miles over my life, but I've never had a, an exit door that came uh, off the airplane. Hope it, <laughs> hope it never happens. God bless those that were on that plane. Goes through people's minds when you sit at a seat on a jetline. Is this flight going to be safe? And I've mentioned hundreds of times, flying is, inf is not infinitely, but quite a bit safer than than driving. Robbie and I were hit by a lady a couple of weeks ago, um, doing <laughs> doing ten miles an hour, pulled out, hit the left rear side of our car, right rear side of our car, rather, and car that we bought new seven years ago was totaled. A second earlier, it would have hit Robin. We were rescued. Thankfully, we were in a safe automobile as well. And thankfully, the accident wasn't due to high speed. God's common grace. Now that happens to saved and unsaved. That's the common grace of God. Next slide. The use of the word salvation is mentioned here a number of times. A safe return to the home of the country after an absence or journey. In fact, it, often it could be used, they would use the word soteria to refer to bodily health. How are you doing today? Mike's been here, Mike and Sheila have been here for about three or four weeks now, and everyone, and how are you doing? Folks that go through cancer treatments or have heart disease or other things, your test. It's good to have Hilda with us this morning, good to have Dixon with us this morning. They've been through situations. How are you doing? That's what the word was used, or how the word was used in the Greek language. How are you doing? What is your soteria? Greg was teaching this morning from John 15, the word abide. He brought out the word uh, abide and abode that's used in the, in the upper room discourse scores of times. And that word means to be at home with, to be comfortable with. Salvation, abide. That's what God wants for you and I. Forty-five times it's found in the New Testament. 
It describes a rescue from God's wrath. And God is not going to set his wrath aside. I am the Lord, he told Moses. I change not. So just because we live in 2024 doesn't mean that God has changed his mind about his wrath. He has not. He just, uh, uh, 45 times it's used and it describes our rescue from God's wrath, our return to him and his heaven, our abode. In my father's house are many mansions is the old English word and it simply means apartments. It was the word that was used then to describe apartments. It means dwelling places. It means places to be at home with. Romans 10, we quote this quite often. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth a confession is made, he confesses, resulting in salvation. In being brought back to God, to be reconciled. Paul would use this word in 2 Corinthians. To be reconciled back to him. To go back to a place of comfort and safety. We have a need to be interrupted, and we have a need to be interrogated. And the need for, to be interrupted and to be interrogated is so that we might be delivered through the divine initiative to return to him and his home. The Pharisees, Jesus in a number of places, would forgive people's sins. And the Pharisees would say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's a true statement. I can forgive you, perhaps, of your sin against me, or you can forgive me of my sin against you. But only God can forgive the very nature of sin. I can't do that. Neither can you. It's the ageless dilemma. We sinners need a Savior who in mercy forgives us and in grace saves us. It should be a period, not a question mark there. The need that exists is greater than our ability. And the divine initiative then is viewed in three from three perspectives. This is the way God looked at his initiative. A view from the past, a view in the present, and both of these views are supernatural. Next slide. Talk about the past for a moment. First Peter, we preach through this, our preaching through First Peter uh, Probably in a few weeks we'll commence again. 1 Peter 1.20 He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was made known for you and for me, times past. The eternal God progressively unfolded his initiative in Israel's history. We're studying that on Sunday night. It was unfolded 
as he created a nation. Israel didn't become a nation. God created a nation. Culminating in Christ's first advent. In him, the Trinity's initiative reached its conclusion. The scripture phrase that is used is, and we looked at this a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, once for all. A few verses, Romans uh, 6.10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 1 Peter 3, toward the end of that chapter, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He did this to bring us to him, to go back home to be with him, to bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit, referring to his resurrection. The author of Hebrews chapter 9 says, Just as a man is appointed to die once, and after that to face judgment. So if you're here this morning... You're uncertain of your relationship with Jesus Christ who loves you and desires to save you. That, in fact, it's all of our, all of our future focus. Appointed unto men and women once to die. And then the judgment. And there will be a judgment for believers. There will be a judgment for unbelievers. So also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The book of Hebrews talks about the millions upon millions of animals that were sacrificed, which, the author says, could never forgive sins. But Christ once died for all. For the sins of many. He'll appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those of us that know him, that we go home to be with him, to those who eagerly await him. He's going to bring us to him. God has spoken once for all, and Christ suffered once for all. Nothing else is going to be added to the word. Nothing else is going to be added to the cross. It's done. Finite. Complete. Nothing can be added to the work of Jesus without belittling him. Well, maybe he needs, maybe something, nope, it belittles the work of Christ. He left something undone. Oh, no, he didn't. God's revealed word is done. Sola Scriptura, the Scriptures alone. It's done. And Christ's final work, sola gratia, grace alone, completed at Calvary, once for all in the past. Next, next uh, slide. A view from the present. That's where you and I are today. Just because the work was done in the past doesn't mean it's not applicable here in the present. That's the eternality of God. His work was finished in the past, but it was not buried in the past. The fruits of Jesus' work continue today, the same yesterday, today, and forever, indeed forever, it will continue. The Holy Spirit continues His work of applying God's gift of grace because Jesus did. 
finish the work. If he hadn't finished the work, the Holy Spirit could not apply grace. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and our souls to grasp what is said in Christ and it stirs up our faith, he stirs up our faith to grasp what the Trinity has done in Christ. And what he did in Christ, he did for his church. A view from the past, a view from the present, a supernatural view. What God did in the past and what God is doing now was supernatural. We cannot escape that. The Bible is chock-a-block full of miracles. Now, miracle, a miracle is not some... Uh, initiation of uh, a chance or a, uh, a re remote opportunity for God to jump in and bail somebody out. That's not a miracle. A miracle is God setting aside his natural laws. I'm standing here this morning because of gravity. You're setting because of gravity. Without that natural law, and there are myriads of them, but without that one, we could be floating around. In fact, without gravity, we would not be here. Our bodies are designed to cope with that. It is the setting aside of a natural law. When Christ healed, he set aside the natural laws of those that he healed the natural laws of the body of those that he healed. And God intervened because he is the author of our body, not us. He's the creator. And the working of the intricate systems of our body are his design. So when he healed, he set those natural laws aside. When he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, he set those natural laws aside. When he walked on water, he set the natural law of gravity and the gas, solid, and liquid types of physical states that we... He sets these aside. That's what God does, and only God can do it, and it's found in the Bible, and without the supernatural, there'd be no resurrection. What God said, revelation of the word, and what God did, he did what he said. Redemption didn't, be, uh, didn't uh, uh, begin revelation. The revelation of the word caused redemption. God, what God said, revelation, what God did in redemption involved events that were unashamedly and irrevocably, inescapable, escapably supernatural. You cannot get away from the supernatural impact of the Bible. People laugh at it. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But it matters not. It's there, and either we are 
uh, agree with what the Lord has revealed to us in our redemption or we deny it. It's an either or. The incarnation came through the virgin birth, a miracle. The Trinity initiated salvation because of that miracle. It's inescapable. Christ's mighty works, all of them, about 39 recorded miracles in the Scripture, and the, the Apostle John was so concerned that he was going to leave something out. He said, these, I've recorded these things, but if, if I recorded everything Jesus did, perhaps the books in the world would not contain them. Christ's preaching was supernatural. Preaching has a supernatural element to it, not because of me, but because of the Word. Teaching has a supernatural element to it, not because of the teacher, because of the Word. The Spirit supernaturally superintends the Word. The atonement, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit, beginning at Pentecost and now continuing in this day, all of these and, and many, many others are supernatural. And our natural minds wrestle with that. In other words, the incarnation cannot be explained in natural or human terms. The atonement cannot be explained in natural or human terms. The resurrection or the ascension, whatever. Salvation cannot be explained in human terms. It is supernatural. Is this not still true? Yes. Understanding the truth in Jesus is not because of our cleverness. Oh, he or she is a very clever person. We don't arrive at this because of our cleverness, of our intelligence, or our lack thereof. Next slide. It's due to, to, divine, to divine illumination. John 1, as John is introducing in his gospel, the incarnate Christ says this, we are children born not of blood, nor of the desire or the will of man. That needs to sink into us. It's supernatural, but born of God. The Word became flesh, John said. That's supernatural. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, John said. We've seen him that is full of grace and truth. Yeah, believers are new creations in Christ. That's supernatural. You have, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we have within our being the supernatural Christ the supernatural spirit, the supernatural father. 
inhabiting sinful, redeemed humanity. Explain that to me. It's not due to human resolve. It's not due to self-effort, not due to paternal or maternal instincts or whatever. It's because of divine grace. For by grace you are saved through faith, which is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gift of God is supernatural. Now, there are many that object to this. In fact, one of the knocks against Christianity is due to the spiritual emphasis on the supernatural. How can rational people believe these things? <laughs> rational people can't. Natural people can't. It requires the Spirit of God. It requires a supernatural revelation found in a supernatural Redeemer. And that's just, that's just it, folks. In fact, I had one guy telling me years ago, we rely on hocus-pocus answers and we don't invite probing or honest questions. I said, I said, give me a break. Have you read the New Testament? Well, you know, I wouldn't read that because you know, there's so many examples. I said, well, then how do you know that? You require me to know things about you, but, and I would need to read, but you don't want to, you don't want to expose yourself. Why? Because of the fear of the wrath of God. Others jettison their faith because they assume that Christianity is restrictive or it's too negative. It's too legalistic. Although Jesus himself said, if the Son of Man makes you free, you'll be free indeed. And some Christians think this. If I go to church, it's too restrictive. I have to listen to somebody and I have to say, I am my own, I'm my own church. No, you're not. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A self-righteous individual and a sinner. In fact, when we dis, dis, deconstruct the Christian, uh, in fact, de deconstructing the Christian faith has become in vogue today. I often read things on uh, Twitter or I get some, some feed from social media on email where this person, this, this man, this woman has left the faith because they just can't swallow the supernatural. They just can't swallow all the suffering in the world and why God doesn't intervene and so forth. Well, why didn't God intervene on the cross? If suffering is so bad, why would he take his son and allow him to be, as the book of Acts says, crucified by wicked and vile men? That's what Peter said. Why would he do that? The new atheism, which is just the old atheism, no new atheism, open spirituality, the mystic, mythic truth, my truth, well, this is my truth, and so forth. All of these things. Listen, optimistic skepticism, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. Sometimes people just make these words up. What does that mean? 
They're just the old pagan idols renamed. That's all they are. Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Have they exposed a new explanation for the world as potent as Christ's confrontation with the religious authorities of his, of his world? And Luke demonstrates this not only in these passages, but almost his entire gospel. We preached through the gospel of Luke several years ago. Next slide. There we go. Thank you. See, truth and authority are essential and indispensable to salvation. You've got to have them both. God is authoritative. Jesus was authoritative. The Word is authoritative. And the Word, obviously, is truth. And the truth comes because of God's authority. They're indispensable to salvation. They are necessary, and they necessarily bring conflict. No one would be saved without that conflict that goes on inside them. No one. And this conflict occurs to all sinners of all time. You see, authority addresses how can I right myself with a holy, eternal God? It's a question you ought to be asking yourself this morning. And truth addresses how do I know what to believe? But see, our response, because we are natural, is limited in two crucial areas. Number one, our minds. The noetic effect of our minds. Sin has what the theologians refer to as a, a noetic effect. In other words, it darkens our minds. It causes us to think in ways that are not positive about God. And the element of the mind... I'm finite, I know I'm finite, so how can I know God? And secondly, the element of our character. I'm sinful, so if I'm sinful, how can I meet a holy God? Now, these are legitimate questions, but there, there are limitations to how these are fulfilled. Our mind and our character assume that someone may be me. But someone has to take the initiative to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Well, Jesus said, how, you, how do you know what is true is addressed by Scripture because God has said it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. Now that's pretty simple, but there is truth in that. God has said something about what means can my sinful character be forgiven so that I can be saved is addressed by the fact that God did something. He said it in Revelation. He did it in redemption. That's the confrontation that we see here in the Gospel of Luke. Next slide, brother. So let's take a few, the next few minutes, we won't spend a great deal of time on this, but let's look at some of these. We've already seen or we read them at your, in your hearing this morning, but let's go back to Luke 15 for a moment and look at the prodigal just for <coughs> a moment. The great thing here begins in verse 11. 
And Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. We see in Luke 18, two men went up to pray. And we see in Luke 19, the crowd in Zacchaeus. So there's, there's a binary effect here. We see this vividly in this passage of Scripture. Now, one of the things that we fail to understand when we read the prodigal is that what we are reading is Jesus um, is, is essentially a metaphor. The prodigal is like Adam and Eve. And the prodigal is like you and I. We leave our happy and safe home. That's exactly what the prodigal did. Give me the portion of the goods that fall to me. Adam and Eve said, give me the fruit. Give me, give me, give me. That's what we want. Give me. And so the prodigal leaves his happy, his safe home, and he goes to a far country. He wants to be like his father, but he doesn't want to work to be like his father. And... He wasted his possessions, the last part of verse 13. Uh, verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that his swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And that's when he came to his senses, okay? The limitation of his mind and character woke up because there was a divine meeting with who he was and who his father was. I will arise, I'll go back to my father. Are you here this morning in that state? Well, I can do it. I can do it. I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say, I've sinned. Now, he didn't stop there. God, forgive me of my sins. Well, we shouldn't stop there. God, forgive me of my sin against you. David said this in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. You see the difference between the prodigal and his elder brother, the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the difference between the crowd and Zacchaeus was this very thing. I have sinned against you. My sin is personal against a personal God. So, I won't, I won't do this comparison right now. Luke 18, let's go there. I'll finish this up next week. We've read this. But I want, to see, I want you to see what uh, Jesus, the, the, the tax collector, of course, beat his breast. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus said the tax collector was the one who was justified. The prodigal is the one that is justified. And then in Luke 19, we read this just a few moments ago. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now, you have a tax collector in, birth, in chapter 18, you have a tax collector in chapter 19, Zacchaeus. Here's the thing, here's the beauty. 
talks about salvation. That's where we are. The divine initiative is salvation. The prodigal returns. The tax collector went home justified. Notice how the word is used, went home. He left the temple, went home justified. And salvation came to Zacchaeus home. My, how our Lord could teach. In Scripture, the word for this is grace. Grace is God's love to unknowing and undeserving sinners. Prodigal didn't de deserve his father's grace. The tax collector did not deserve Jesus' justification. Zacchaeus did not deserve salvation. Grace is love that stops. Grace stoops. It interrupts and rescues sinners. That's the purpose for the first advent of Christ. Grace came through the divine initiative. It came through a personal encounter, a virgin-born babe that became the vicariously suffering Savior. Jesus knew this from an early age. We're told this in Luke chapter, the latter part of Luke chapter 2. And beloved, salvation is not another word for forgiveness. It's far deeper than that. And we'll look at this beginning next week. It encompasses three phases of God's purpose and redemption. As we begin to close out this message on the divine initiative, understand there's a difference between mercy and merit. That's what's seen in Luke 15. The older, older brother went to his father and said, hey, look at all I've done. I deserve this. The Pharisee said, I don't do such things. I deserve grace. And a person, man, woman, boy, or girl, will never be saved thinking they deserve grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for the illumination of these passages. We thank you that in your divine revelation, you move to redeem us. We praise you this morning. And so our prayer is, Lord Jesus, that if there are any here this morning that do not know you as Savior, that they would understand that they need to arise and go to the Father. They need to claim, they, they know that they have sinned against God and against the Father. 
pray that we'd be like the tax collector who humbled himself and like Zacchaeus who sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn to close this morning. And if the Lord's spoken to you, this is your time. You have a responsibility. I think one of the first two slides we talked about, our responsibility to respond. God has provided a pardon in Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility to respond to that pardon. And when we do, the Lord lovingly and graciously forgives us of our sins imparts faith to us in order to receive his grace so that we may be born again. As we sing, if you make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and the Lord's moving in your heart and your soul, perhaps to, to unite with the, um, with the Flat Creek family. You know the Lord is Savior. Maybe you need to, uh, to be obedient and follow the Lord and believe his baptism. We encourage you to do that or unite with statement of faith, transfer of letter. As a child of God, God took the initiative. Yes, this is the gospel that unfolds almost every time it's preached or taught. God took the initiative. We should never, ever, ever forget that. And we need to teach to our children, our grandchildren, God took the initiative to save and thank him for it. What number, Miss Stephanie? 305. 305. If the Lord's spoken, won't you?